All right, welcome to the RSP cast. We're going to do a little scout talk here. I am Doc Brown. This is Dr. Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> we just exactly. in our little laboratories throwing things up to see what sticks. I'm here with Russ Landy. It's always a pleasure, Russ. Oh, it's great to be here. I tell you what, there's nowhere I get to talk about football and have such often similar perspectives, but from totally different viewpoints that it really makes it enjoyable to talk football with Matt and sort of put our ideas together and see what comes out the other end. Yeah, man, my sentiments exactly. So we're going to get started here talking about, you know, quarterbacks, talking about coaches, quarterback development, expectations people have, and then maybe get into some prospects as well, you know, as this 2021 draft season really um, gets going from a fan base standpoint. We've been at it for a while. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, with that in mind, you know, it was posed our uh, at Football Guys, where I where I also work. You know, Joe Bryant occasionally will ask our our staff some questions, just kind of behind the scenes. And he just had a fun little question that I thought would be good to do on our podcast, which is if if money wasn't the issue, like everybody they had the same contract, and you were a, a coach, who would you rather have at this point in their you know at this point in their careers on what we know, Carson Wentz or Daniel Jones? So I pose this question to you, Ross. Who would you rather have? You know, it's a great question. I mean, if I can take a snapshot and say Carson's going to be healthy, I'll take him and go with him. But I'm a big believer, and part of it's analytics, part of what is that guys who are hurt are going to stay hurt. So I would probably lean towards Daniel Jones, even though I don't think Daniel has been great. I think you've seen improvements from him. He doesn't make those throws that you just look at and say, what are you doing? And clearly he can make stuff when the play goes sideways. So I think there's a lot of good things to be excited about with Jones versus Wentz. I just see so much inconsistency. And I don't know if it's due to he's he's still hurt or battling through things that we don't know, or is he maybe just not comfortable now in the pocket? Because when I watch Philadelphia, I don't see the same confident player that I did two or three years ago where he would stand there, not that he's not tough anymore, but the confidence is different. When the pocket's collapsing now, I almost see sort of, let me just get rid of the ball. Whereas I used to see him say, I'll stand here no matter what, and I'll find a way to make the play happen. And it's not a lack of toughness. It's that lack of, I don't know. There's just a lack of confidence when I watch Wentz play. I don't see the same quarterback I used to. Yeah, and it may be one of those things where, because he doesn't have the familiarity that he did with his receivers and that starting receiving course gotten so much turnover to it that maybe he's hesitating. Yeah. To say the least for sure, you know? And so maybe he hesitates a bit on, and he overthinks about those players because he's worried about the consequences of guy, not knowing where he's supposed to be, not being where he expects them, all those types of things. And the offensive line having some turnover and some changes no too. Doubt. So he may have a little bit of discomfort there. And, you know, that that whole window shutting on your hand kind of thing where he's he's been hit one so many times that he may be a little gun-shy in certain areas. Not And again, not a toughness thing, but more of a, okay, my guard, my left, my backside guard gives up more pressure in these situations than my old guy does. And I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more hesitant well, about staying in there. Forming, right? if, you, if, if you start to feel pressure through the first five or six games, it's just going to make you maybe slide a little bit more to your right when you take that snap. And that changes the perspective. It changes the, the way the play rolls out. And all of a sudden, you're not able to make all the throws. So 
I mean, hey, I think when they play their best, I think Wentz is still a better quarterback, but I don't see his best game to game. I've seen some games this year where he looked like the old Carson Wentz, and I've seen other games where I was just shocked at how, and I really, a lot of it is the confidence. I don't see that same gunslinger, I'm going to be able to pull this rabbit out of the hat that I used to. With him, I used to never have a concern that he wouldn't make the play when it counted most. Now I don't see that as often from him. I don't see that swag. Let me pose this question to you because you've been in these rooms. You've been in, you know, in these organizations. So how unrealistic it would be for me to say as a coach, if I had to be posed with this question saying, all right, I hate to answer the question this way. And it's, and it sounds really like just, you know, amoral in any sort of way or, um, but just being real, I, what if I told you I'd want to take Wentz because if the contracts were equal, Wentz is most likely to get hurt so that if my answer was truly neither and I wanted to draft my own, I'd rather have the guy who has the offers the biggest risk of basically getting knocked out and creating the demand for my owner to actually, not that I want to submarine the guy's career, but at the same point being able to say, I know this guy's tendencies. I know that at his best, he can give me the better chance to win. But at his worst, it might be that he hurts himself and now we need a quarterback, you know? You know, it, it makes perfect sense. And I'll give you a great story. And it tells you not only how cold... Now, I'm not saying all teams are like this, but how cold-hearted teams can be. I worked for a team and we were in our draft meetings. And I'm not going to say who it was, but I don't want to put it out sure. there. But there was a highly rated player who had the spinal stenosis. And his was not considered minor. His was considered severe to where there was a legitimately higher potential for him to become paralyzed in a game than other players. So our medical people and our scout or maybe scouting director said, this is a guy we should take off the board. And our GM at the time, or head of scouting, whatever you want to call him, actually stopped the process and said, wait a second. He said, let me find out. He said, to the, he asked the trainers, he said, are we saying that he is at a higher percentage chance of missing games throughout his career and being an injury guy? And they said, no, he's at a higher percentage chance of becoming crippled, but it will not really affect his odds of missing games on a regular basis through the injury. And his response was, then keep him in the same place on the board, because if all we're talking about is he is playing or he's never playing again, then I'm not going to allow that to affect my decision. Because if he's never playing again, I'll go get the replacement. If this is something I'm not going to battle and deal with for 10 years, then we have to discuss it. Wow. Yeah. And that's a cold-hearted yeah. guy. But like he said, if, if this comes true, it's not like we're debating when he's coming back. It's yeah. over, and we're on to the next guy. And to defend that guy, as weird as that may sound, I can certainly understand from the point of view of, of going, okay, I'm I, what's not said is the assumption of, is this guy going to, if people have told him that he has a higher chance of getting paralyzed already, if they've already told him that he already knows the results of his nope, exam he does. He and he's, and he, and he knows the odds and he's still going to play then, then why am I, you know, going to worry about what, how other people think of me to choose him or not to choose him based on that, because he's a grown man and he's deciding that he wants to do this and he wants it for the money. And no matter, even if I sat down in his room and told him this is a bad idea, like you shouldn't do this. This is a big risk to your life and your well-being. And he said, 
And his answer is going to probably be, I'm, I'm not doing it, but his answer has obviously been with a doctor telling him that who's more qualified than me is like, stick it. I'm playing. Then that, yep. that choice is out of my hand. So I, I get that as cold as yep. it sounds. Yeah. It, and it's a tough, it's a tough <laughs> debate. I mean, when I look at Wentz, there's no doubt when I've seen him play at his best in the two games this year that I thought he played very well, I don't know if Daniel Jones will ever get to that. Yeah. I, I, I've never seen Daniel Jones and give it, he's younger in his career, but I've never seen him look like a true superstar. Whereas Wentz, there are times you watch him and he looks like that guy who can carry a franchise. Yeah. So it really depends on what you're willing to do. Where is your organization in the belief of, we want consistency. We're willing to trade quality for consistency. So we know what we get every week, which often coaches are at most positions. They will trade elite to get the same every week because it's easier to coach the same because you know what you're getting. But at the quarterback position, it's a whole different ballgame because special quarterbacks win, marginal quarterbacks rarely win. I just in terms of win championships. I, I, if it were me, I'd take Wentz. I'm just going to say it because for me, it would be not only from the reasons discussed that we just had, yeah. but the other one is just that I think his teammates would be more inspired. inspired teammates would be more inspired by Wentz because of the effort that he gives, even oh, though yeah. his feet, yeah, his feet are God awful at times in the pocket and you don't know what kind of position they're going to be in from one moment to the next. He doesn't have a great drop game at all. They have to kind of function the offense around him. But as much as he's willing to stand in the pocket and take punishment, at least in the past, he's not pocket deaf. And I feel no. like, I feel like that Daniel Jones is a little tone deaf in terms of timing and standing in the pocket. And yep. I, I, and I think that at some point his offensive linemen are going to be like, why are we even like working with this guy? If it is worse, very hard for, yes. for an offensive line when a quarterback doesn't have that internal clock in that sense it becomes almost impossible because there's only so long you can block. Yeah. Even the great ones are going to lose their blocks at times. Yeah. Your quarterback doesn't have that timing of what I got to do, how do I get out of here, or moving. He doesn't have to run with the ball. Just get out. Just extend the play so they don't have to block for eight seconds. Yeah. And, and I, I don't see that with Jones. No, not at all. And I think it's been interesting because last week you saw him. They, they let him run a lot more. Um, he ran – he ran most of his red zone series uh, rather than threw the ball um, or he handed the ball off. Um, and they they shortened his drops, more three-step drops, more quick vertical throws, kind of like Wentz, what they did with Wentz instead of, but for different reasons. Daniel Jones, I mean, if you ask him three-step, five-step, seven-step, it's going to look nice. Ask him to stand in the pocket after a seven-step drop. You're basically inviting. You're basically like dropping him into an ocean with like a, a yeah, blood exactly. suit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> with a bunch of sharks. So it's like he's giving him the short, accurate throws or the short setup and quick throw. He's accurate under, I'd say, 35 and in. Like in the vertical game, he's pretty good. Past 35, it's when it's kind of a crapshoot with him, even more so than the average from what I've seen. So giving him some of those shorter throws where Darius Slayton can get quick separation or an Evan Ingram might be able to when he's on the field um, and, and guys like that, I think it's been helpful last week for him. Again, it was the Eagles that they were playing. It's one team and, and the Eagles have been struggling on both sides of the ball. But 
um, still, I mean, Darius Slay's still a pretty good corner, and they were able to take advantage of him on some some of these looks too. So I think there's a formula there, but then again, it's a limiting formula, just like it's a limiting formula has been for Wentz. So of the two, yeah, that's one of the reasons I thought. But this kind of, um, and if you have anything to add, great. No, I think you're 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 nailing it on the head. Is when I watch Jones, he's one of the more frustrating guys because I think if you could cut out the ten percent, his elite ten percent of his plays, that's what you think of when you think of an All-Pro quarterback. But the problem is, it's so far and few between, and he just doesn't seem natural in the pocket. He seems a little bit robotic, yeah. and to me, that's why the three-step works because you just he's basically catching, dropping, throwing. Yeah, and. There's not a lot of time for him to sit there and sit there and sit there and dawdle this on forever because he's got a live arm. He can get rid of the ball quickly in terms of the physical release quickness. So take advantage of that. Don't let him sit there. And to me, that's when things become problematic. So, yeah, it's a frustrating thing with Jones. With Wentz, it's not even the timing. It's just the mechanics are all over the place. And it's not just game to game that sometimes he looks different. It's snap to snap yeah. where footwork looks different. And that's very frustrating because for the coaches, everything is charted out exactly how they want it for where the drop is, where the receivers are, how quickly the ball comes out. And his drops are so inconsistent in terms of depth, precision, footwork, that it leads to the ball being coming out at different times. And it's frustrating, despite when he does things right. Gosh, he's fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there, it's an intriguing set of players in the NFC East who – who are going to be interesting to watch how their careers develop um, down the line. And, and it's one of those questions that is a tough one because the average fan who's not a Giants or Eagles fan might say neither. So yeah, exactly. when you're, when you're maybe fun- Alex Smith, if you want somebody from the NFC East right now. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and even he's an interesting cat in himself. So, um, but when we, you know, when we look at quarterbacks and then it also comes down to kind of coaches, one of the things that also was discussed on this message board that I thought was interesting was, you know, is it better to have a, a great quarterback or an elite quarterback, let's say elite, say under great, but like an elite quarterback, um, or is it more important to have a great head coach and which one would you rather have or which one is harder to get? You know, those are some of the questions that were posed or kind of brought up with this. And some of the, you know, some of our, some of the writers were kind of talking, well, you know, how many, how many um, great head coaches have been great without a great quarterback, you know, and then, you know, and then other thoughts are, well, you know, do you, is it harder to be a great quarterback or harder to be a great coach, you know, and it kind of went down in those types of lanes. So I just wondered what your thoughts are about that whole topic well firstly i would i would almost separate them into uh, add a third one to even make it more complicated which is you have the quarterback the head coach and i think it's nearly as hard to find a good head coach as it and when i say good i mean really good head coach as it is to find a really good offensive coordinator there are a lot of brutally bad offensive coordinators and the ones that are good can make an average quarterback, above average, a good quarterback, very good, a very good one elite. Because the play calling and identifying what the quarterback does right and wrong and well and tailoring the offense around that skill set is such a rare skill. There are so few guys that are good at it that sometimes you may have a great coordinator, but or I shouldn't say a great head coach, but he has a bad coordinator under him. He's doomed. 
doesn't matter who the quarterback is because that coaching matters. But I will say, at the same time, Josh McDaniels has proven over and over he's a great offensive coordinator under Belichick. They did some really unique things for years with Brady, and they did it with varying talent at different positions, whether it was Gronk and Hernandez, whether it was Randy Moss outside with Wes Welker and Edelman and all those guys. They did all sorts of things on offense with different skill sets because McDaniels, to me, is one of the more creative coaches. But as you see this year, when you don't have a great passer, not that – Newton wasn't great at one point. He right now is not playing great. It's hard for an offense to be good. So you need both. You can't just coordinate a bad quarterback into being good, but a great quarterback is going to have a very hard time being productive with a bad coordinator. So I think the two have to mesh. I really do. I think it's uncommon to find a coordinator who can make a marginal quarterback really good. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and it's and to me, it's like it's harder to. Be, I think it would be harder to be a great coach than it would be to be a great quarterback. And the reason I would say that is that while maybe from a physical skill standpoint, obviously people would say, "Boy, are you kidding me?" You know, being a quarterback is the toughest position in sport, and that's true. But everything that the quarterback does is interrelated from their drop back footwork to their um, throwing motion to their processing of information on the field to being able to, you know, um, athletically create. Um, So there are a lot of elements that are all interrelated, whereas as a coach, you not only have to have an understanding of like offense and defense to some degree, you have to have good delegation and management skills. You have to have... You know, in some cases, you might be an integral part in having an eye for talent. In some cases, you might have an integral part of like personnel decisions in terms of who you add and who you take out, Um, as well as like you just said, picking staff and knowing who's going to be worthwhile and knowing who's not and knowing how to mesh talent and work together with all of that. Oh, and then you got to deal with the media and the public. And you got to also deal with your GM and probably the owner. Um, So you have to have all of those different skills and they're disparate skills. And the great ones have maybe three or more of those types of skills that are like competent or are really good. And most coaches, I would have to think, maybe have one, maybe two. And they're doomed because they're in a situation with a a GM or a head coach or an owner they got to manage upward with and they have no skills to do that or they're saddled with an offensive or defensive mind that they they don't know how to override and, and kind of work with or get rid of or change things around. And that's a lot harder to me to like deal with all that than like what you're just doing on the field. And, and you, you all the things you mentioned, the one other thing that you didn't is, even if they're great in everything you mentioned, if they're not a leader, they won't be winning games as a head coach. Yes. Because you have to lead men. Yeah. In a game that we can talk all we want about the beauty of it, but it is an extraordinarily violent game. And to motivate adults to sacrifice their body and, and deal with pain and deal with uncomfortable all the time for your good, for you to win and you to get a bigger contract as a head coach, that's a hard thing. Now, certain guys have a natural ability to motivate Bill Parcells, everybody that I've ever spoken to that was there said he was one of the greats at identifying what it took to motivate each player and each coach and could do that. Other people have one style and that's all they do and they can't adjust. So 
it's hard. Being a head coach is dramatically hard. One of the great sayings I always heard, the way you could tell, not that you can ever do this, but the way you can always tell the great coaches, there are great coaches, he'll take his in and he'll beat yours in, and then he'll take yours in and he'll beat his in. That was, I think that was Bob Phillips who said that way back in the day. And he always talked about the great coaches can take any team and they can get them to be winning teams. Not many coaches do that. A lot of coaches, their second and third stop, they don't win. Yeah. It's really rare to see a coach win like Parcells did in different cities. And I know we talked about it before we got on the air. I think one of the more underrated coaches of all time, because we're trying to talk about quarterback, more important coach with Belichick won with Brady, but he's never won a Super Bowl. Other than that, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to denigrate Belichick. Six Super Bowls, he's unbelievable. Or Mike Tomlins had Ben Roethlisberger. Chuck Knoll had Brad Shaw. Um, Bill Walsh, who I think is truly one of the great ones, had back-to-back Hall of Famers. But how about Joe Gibbs? He wins three Super Bowls with Joe Theismann, Doug Williams, and Jay Schrader. Yeah. Three yeah. good, solid quarterbacks. Yeah. But I don't believe any of them's ever going to the Hall of Fame. And he won Super Bowls with all three, and even won one of them with Timmy Smith, a running back who he literally picked up the trash heap, had one great season, and was gone from football pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that's an example of a coach who truly was special and knew what he was doing. It's very difficult. I've been around a bunch of people, and I'll tell you one thing, finding great coaches, like I had the experience with Vermeil, there are not many great coaches. Yeah. It's really rare. I mean, Vermeil won with Jaworski. He took Kurt Warner to a Super Bowl win, and he won a lot of games with Trent Green in Kansas City. But not many coaches win regularly after that one quarterback that they had. Yeah, and that's so true. And you think about, because it's harder to build a complete team, I think, than it is to find a great uh, or a good quarterback. A good quarterback. A good yeah. quarterback. We're not going to say great. It's harder to find a great quarterback. But, yeah, to find a good quarterback, um, I, I, you know, to me, yeah, if you can build a good team, you're, you're, you know, you think about the teams that went to Super Bowls without a great quarterback. And you think about the Ravens and you think about the 49ers who've done it. You think about Even the Giants. Both their the Super Giants. Bowls. Yes, absolutely. There are a number of teams that have done that um, and have put themselves in that situation. So it is. I mean, you don't. You know, Andy Reid's getting his second chance now, you know, and now that he has a great, you know, he had McNabb, now he has Mahomes, you know, and certainly he was competitive with Alex Smith. Um, you know, they're, they're certainly in that realm too, but it's like, that's a that's a tough gig. And I just find it interesting. I love that you mentioned um, Gibbs. I certainly love that you mentioned Parcells. I think that he's a guy that um, deserves a lot of those accolades, especially for the way that you talk about doing it differently. Getting that, you know, you know, motivating different people, having different ways about to. Marty, Marty Schottenheimer will never be considered a a great coach by the media, I think. But I think he's a coach's coach from that standpoint. Oh, people within the league, he's he's beloved as one of the most underrated coaches of all time. I mean, this is a guy. I think he had two losing seasons as a head coach. Yeah, and he was playing with some bad quarterbacks at times, yeah. and he found a way to win. His teams were always the toughest. I mean, he was a great football coach. To this day, I look back and look at the Chargers. I'm a lifelong Chargers fan, and I think you guys chose to keep A.J. Smith right. over Marty Schottenheimer. Right. 14-2. and two. It's yeah. like, are you people out of your mind? Yeah. It's like, if you kept, if they had got rid of A.J., imagine how good they would be right now. Yeah. They, Marty would have 
I don't know if we'd still be coaching now, obviously, because he's having health issues, but they would have probably won 10 games for five or six more years instead of having the up and down every year of North Turner, who was a good, nice guy and a very creative coach, but he wasn't more than shot. Man, if I had if I had owned the Chargers, I would probably pretty much say, "Listen, Marty Schottenheimer's coaching here until he decides he doesn't want to, and if you don't like it, you can buy the team from me. Just yep. you know, I mean, just buy the team from me because I'll 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 outlast you complaining on the radio when we you know are contending year after year. All if all I hear is we can't get over the hump." You know, all I know is I'll just keep saying, well, how many teams have had this kind of ability to get here? And after they switch coaches, it doesn't work out. You're going to bring up the three exceptions in history where they like, where they're good for one more year. And then what happens to them after they're good for that one more year? Because then they go to crap. I'd rather have the guy who played, went to Washington and had nothing and like was threatening to make the playoffs with Jeff George and like, and a ground game that looked like they were, you know, they went back 20 years that no team would run and he could he could turn that team into like a tough physical team that no team wanted to play. No doubt. I mean, he it's amazing. And I look back to think, what would have happened in Washington if they just let him be? Yeah. I mean, oh, they yeah. probably would have won a lot of games and Snyder would be so happy. He'd be thrilled. They would have been going to NFC title games, even if they never won a Super Bowl. Yeah. They would have been averaging 10 or 11 wins a year for probably seven or eight years. And Snyder, right now, he doesn't know. He he has no grasp of how good that is. Yeah, going to the playoffs every single year, no yeah. idea. Not none at all. And it's funny because <laughs> then we talk about quarterback development and tie this back in. I've said this before on different shows, but I remember watching a, an NFL show on Drew Brees, and they were talking about it was actually on Schottenheimer. And Drew Brees comes on. They have him on 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 the segment. He goes. I credit my entire development to my NFL career to Marty Schottenheimer, not Sean Payton, Marty Schottenheimer, because Marty Schottenheimer benched me several times. And it was how he benched me that made the difference because he knew how to coach me. He, he would take me out in the game after I threw an interception or made a mistake or two that were, that was a big mistake. And he'd pull me aside and he'd talk to me and he'd say, listen, Drew, you're my guy. You're still my guy. If this game gets close, I'm bringing you back in for you to help finish this game off. But you need to calm down and get your head straight and see why you made the mistakes you did. And I need you to sit and watch a little bit while Doug comes in or while whoever else they had in and just kind of collect your thoughts and watch the game from a side for a bit just to see. But again, you're my guy, you know, I'm, you know, and when it got close, he'd put me back in. And if it didn't, then, then fine. But I never forgot that because there's you see guys who get benched. Well, nowadays, if you get benched, it's over, which oh, is... Oh, well, I mean, look at Washington. And I mean, yeah. I'm not a Haskins fan, but literally, he's in his second year. Yeah. And they're benching him. That's not That shouldn't be the end of the world. Yeah. It should be, yeah, he's not playing well. We're going to give him a break. He's going to get in the film room, and we're going to give him another chance. But the media is so on top of it that it, it, I'd be stunned if he ever gets a chance to start again in Washington. Yeah. Terry Bradshaw would have never had a career in this era. I mean, yep. you know, it's all we would have seen is he would have been a meme of his image hanging in effigy in, you know, in the rafters of Pittsburgh's, 
um, Three River Stadium, you know, or Heinz Field now. And you look at that and it's like the, the lack of patience with development is just insanity. And we've talked about that a lot, but it's like, that's the thing that Schottenheimer had. And Schottenheimer was the kind of coach, he or or a, um, I think a Belichick or certain guys with certain cachet now, or if Parcells was still coaching, they probably, or, or even Gibbs, they'd probably say, I don't care what you think. This is what I'm doing. You're going to, yep. I'm going to put your like 30 years of eating, uh, of eating the um, smorgasbord that we put out for the media up against my 30 years of actually doing this job. No, thank you. You guys can go back and have some more donuts on us. You know, but, there's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I look at it and think that there are certain coaches that could probably do it and manage that player to go through the ups and downs of the first two years of getting benched and going in another lineup. But I think there's very few that could do it now because the media attention and the owners too are part of the issue is that they don't want to just say, well, I hired you for this job. So I'm trusting you to do this job. I mean, and maybe we're wrong on Haskins because Ron Rivera is an old school coach. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't make this decision saying you're done Haskins. Right. But the problem is when he made the decision, the media piled on saying he's done. Yeah. And that's why you've heard Rivera try to come out a few times and say, Hey, this kid's future is not over here. Yeah. This is a learning experience. And that's what the great coaches do. And I, and I think Ron is one of those guys. He's yeah. a very, very old school sort of, I think you need the new wave of analytics, the new way of maybe being able to open things up. But I think you need some of that old school learning to coach, understanding people more than what is sometimes there in today's NFL. Yeah, for sure. And you got to understand if it's the most difficult job in sports, it's the most difficult job in sports. How many times has a pitcher been taken out of a game? Exactly. Did they like, did they cut the guy or trade him after because he walked the batter in the ninth inning or that he blew a save or that he basically loaded the bases up and they hit a, a grand slam on him? And how, I mean, if that if that happened every time, we wouldn't have any pitchers in the league, you know. Especially and if you look at the great pitchers the first year or two they're in the league, they're awful. And they get demolished yeah. until they figure out, well, this works, this doesn't. I can't throw this here. And all of a sudden, I mean, Greg Maddox was not a rock star from day one in Atlanta, but by year three or four, he was painting those corners, and it was unbelievable. Yeah. But you've got to give them a chance. And part of the problem in the NFL is it's not like a pitcher. There's five of them. John, well, Sm yeah. we can get by with that for a while. John Smoltz was the perfect example of yes. that. He was a guy who en ended up consulting a sports psychologist. And I have a funny story about John Smoltz. I, back in that day, I was waiting tables while I was working during the summers while working in, um, while going to co college. And uh, I was waiting tables at a restaurant in North Atlanta that was seemed to be like right off the highway to where all the athletes lived like maybe about 15, 20 miles, maybe not that long, but maybe a good 15 to 20 minutes away from their homes. But it was like off an exit. So they would find this restaurant and they would tend to go there occasionally. So I've like waited on Deion Sanders and I've waited on some other people. And Deion was kind of a trip. But anyway, um, you know, the John Smoltz story was funny because his wife used to come in all the time to watch the Braves games. And this was like the year the Braves had like a great season and John Smoltz turned it around. But up to then... He was like, you know, this Detroit Tigers prospect who was hard throwing, who just, he fell apart in games over and over again. And, and he was turning around that year, but early in the summer, it was still like, we weren't sure what was going on with the Braves. And I remember we had this new kid and he like comes in 
you know, to the like the wait station. He's all kind of freaked out. He's like, I don't know what happened, but this woman I was waiting on, you know, like after I talked to her, she like moved up to the bar and told the bartender to tell me that she didn't want me to work, to wait on her anymore. And I have no idea why. I don't even know what's going on. So I turn around and look and I see who it is. And she's watching the Braves game and I see her and look again. And I'm like, do you remember anything you said to her? She's like, yeah. I said, I only said one thing. We just had some small talk. And I was like, was it about the Braves? He's like, yeah, how'd you know? He's like, what you what exactly did you say word for word? He goes, she said, hey, can you can you turn the Braves game on? I, you know, I want to watch it. And he's like, yeah, but what does it really matter? Smoltz is pitching. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and we all died laughing back there. And the, the, the opportunity to tell him, yeah, you're not going to believe who you're talking to. But that was his wife, you know. Yeah, that kid, I, you know, that was interesting. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean. But it's a great point, though, is that yeah. you can't let these young guys' careers be ended because they struggle early. And you're going to pay that much money for the toughest job in sports. I just, I never get over that is that you are going to, who, who, what kind of businessman spends that kind of an investment on someone and is like, well, we're not going to train you. We're not going to, we're not going to give you, you know, multiple chances here. And then their argument's going to be, well, we're paying you that much money because we think you have it together by now. Well, then you're not being realistic. Yeah. Especially not in football. Yeah. I mean, it's like. (laughs) <laughs> and and the funny part is, and I don't know if it, it's just how many people, both personnel and coaches, they'll watch four or five games of a quarterback as a rookie, and they'll be ready to make a permanent decision. And it's like, hold on now, guys. It's like, it's a first year. It's like, do people not remember that when Bledsoe and Meyer came out, Rick Meyer set every record there was as a rookie quarterback. Yep. And Bledsoe wasn't bad, but he was just a guy. He was just an average yeah. rookie. And if you look over the next 12 years, Meyer was gone from football and Bledsoe was a good quality starter. A lot of quarterbacks either excel or are terrible as rookies. It's that third, second, third, fourth year where you really start to find out what they are. Yeah, You You don't let them go through ups and downs. How do you have a chance? We pound this over and over again, but it's just true. It's just like, you know, you need the first you know four to eight games that they play is kind of like an introduction of here's what they do really well like you know oh they're athletic oh they can throw the with velocity oh he can read this defense oh he can audible to this he's got a nice heart count oh he he moves well in the pocket that's great all right so you know what he doesn't do well i haven't seen him really yet i don't know if he doesn't do this well but i haven't seen him yet throw to his left you know, I haven't seen him throw the high-velocity ball in the middle of the field here in tight coverage. I haven't seen him deal with, um, you know, cross blitzes. I haven't seen him deal with us loading the box and scaring the bejesus out of him as if we're all coming at one time and then dropping into a zone. We haven't, I haven't shown any of that because there hasn't been enough opportunities to see whether he can do it or not. But you know what? I'm going to throw at least a couple of these things into this game plan because I think yep. this may hurt him. So... Okay, so then the next six to eight six to eight games are him dealing with small amounts of these things that may not show up in the analytics enough to be able to know without a shadow of a doubt that he sucks against the blitz or that he's not good against zone or he's not good with certain types of pre-snap reads. But you get more and more inklings. So he either doesn't, you know, and then what happens is in those that second half of the season, if he's starting the whole year, is... He's like, he shows with no problem. He's able to handle a lot of these things. And it's like, wow, he's really good. 
Well, he's really good up to this point because, again, defensive coordinators still haven't had a chance to throw everything at him. They've just thrown little things. So yep. let me get into the next season. Has he worked on enough stuff or is he like Baker Mayfield it and said, you know what? These progressive ads are great. I'm I'm having fun doing this. And I'm, maybe I need to work a little harder because he admitted he needed to work a little bit harder. And, you know. So he hasn't, you know, hasn't done that and teams catch up and they do the same thing. They just keep adding on to it. And at some point, if you're not working through it, you do hit a brick wall and, and you're, and there's a point and there's going to be a point with every quarterback. There's things they just can't handle. Matt Ryan's been in the league long enough. There's things we know he can't do, but the, 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 the list is small enough. Exactly. It's small enough that. It's it's something on that list or things and go well. Why won't teams do that all the time? Because defenses don't have the personnel to do some yeah, of the things it, to it, stop. The list is yeah. so small you can't force him to only do that. Yes, exactly. But if the list is big enough, then you can say, you know what, you know, Jared well, Goff, we can. Well, yeah. There's yeah. nothing you do poorly. We're going to force you to do those. Exactly. And so it, it it can take two to three years to like get enough data for a defensive co- coordinator to go. Here's what our defense is good at. Here's what it's bad at. Here are the things that we're good at that can we can do to stop, you know, this quarterback. But they can't do that eight games in. So, of course, Marcus Mariota is going to look like a superstar early on. Of course, Baker Mayfield is going to look like a superstar early on. Of course, Tua and Joe Flacco, or excuse me, Joe Burrow are going to look good early on as good as they may be they may turn out to be good and we may have really nice things to say about these guys but the true answer is until we see the full complement of what the nfl can do to you we don't really know for sure no and you know when i was first getting in this business i was told something and, and i've been told it since by numerous coaches with the starting quarterback you really find out if they're going to be special like quality guys that can carry a franchise the middle of the third year as a full-time starter. Because the first year as a full-time starter, no matter how much film work you do on them in college and on their preseason, you're sort of guessing what they're good at and what they're bad at. So when you have a whole year of film, then you come into their second year and you take away 85% of what they really excel at. And you basically say, prove to me you can do the things you're bad at. Well, most of the time that second year, there are going to be a lot of ups and downs, week to week. They're going to do some well, some not. Well, that third year, they're going to have had two off seasons and a full season to work on all the things they're bad at. The third year is when you want to see, okay, they take that big step forward. They become comfortable with everything. And even if they're not great in all the areas they're bad at, they at least know how to deal with them. And then you can see them start to play well. And that's both for guys that excel early and struggle early. It's that third season when you get a real picture of, is this guy going to continue to play at a high level or have we seen the best and he's never going to get better than what he is? And I tend to believe that's true. Is there are a lot of guys first year or two are wildly inconsistent and third year they either blossom or they wash away. Yeah, they either lock it in or, or it's gone. Well, I'll say this. Now that we've had our – we've got another quarterback conversation to have in a minute here, but the more I'm thinking about this original question about Wentz and, 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 uh, and Jones – I'm thinking I want Wentz, but as long as I can also do this, I'd like to, I'd like to be able to have a screenwriter who can live 
with my backup quarterback and his uncle, Chad Kelly and Jim, because I would need Jim to come live with Chad. And, <laughs> and, and then we can have them chronicle like the things that go on in that household as a side deal to make a movie about this or a sitcom exactly. that we could base off of it if it doesn't work out and just change the names and change the professions a little bit. But exactly. because I'm still a Chad Kelly fan in terms of what he does on the too. field, I think that guy... He's never going to get a shot, I don't think, for real. No, and, but. And, he, and you know, it's sort of funny. When you look at a guy like Chad Kelly, and to me it's Ryan Nassib. I always thought he was going to be a real high-end starter. How many guys that are like, quote-unquote, get in the league, never get that chance? And then you see, and it's not to knock him, the kid in Jacksonville, six-round pick, and all of a sudden he's going to end up starting probably 12 games this year. Yeah. And I always look and think some of these quarterbacks that I really liked or like you're mentioning – with Chad Kelly, if he had one year where he just due to happenstance, he's got to start 10 games, that can make a career. This kid in Jacksonville will probably be in the league a decade now yeah. because worst case, he's going to be looked at as an emergency guy. Yeah. Because he got through it, he showed enough that we can rely on him and have him on the roster. Yeah. And meanwhile, because of what Chad Kelly did in his college career off the field and then what he did yeah. in Denver to submarine a career, you know, it's sad because – then he gets in the summer and he says something that most people just associate with being a goofball, which is, I I would race anybody and beat any quarterback in the league except for Lamar Jackson. And everyone's like, what a goofball. What an idiot for saying that. He, that's not true. And I'm sitting there going, well, I've watched his tape after a sports hernia, and I can tell you that he's absolutely 100% right that he could beat anybody in the league other than Lamar Jackson. He's He was a dual-threat quarterback who and, was that fast. And even if he's wrong... If he weren't Chad Kelly, yeah. If he were Justin Herbert, and yeah. he said that, no one would have an issue. They'd just be oh, but confidence, because, yeah. yeah. Because of Kelly's background, it all of a sudden is oh, this kid's a wackadoo. Yeah. He's crazy, and yeah. it's unfortunate because a lot of guys never get those games to start. I'm looking at what Josh McCown yeah. has. What is he? 13 years, 15 years, and he's never been a high end starter, but he's done enough. He's gotten chances, and he's been able to carve out a 15 year career. And I don't think he's ever done anything yeah. spectacular. Yeah. I think my final my final script idea then would be this. Is, is actually, my long-term script idea would be this. We need a true <laughs> life major league situation in Cleveland. We can get maybe we can get the Haslam's to be the be the play the owners, you know, of that, and we can get someone to bring in Chad Kelly, and he could be the football version of Wild Thing, you know. Well, and I'll tell you what, with Mayfield, why wouldn't you have Kelly? They're similar guys in terms of athletic ability, move on the run, be able to make plays. He'd be a great guy to have as a backup. I would, man. Let, to change that whole offense. You can I, do a lot of the same things if Mayfield would get hurt. Boom. Yeah. And you get a more dynamic runner. You'd actually get a guy who's more decisive as a thrower. Um, and I, I'd argue more accurate. But, um, you know, that's – you know, again, that's this is my little fever dream of a player who I really like that just hasn't, you know, that who's self-destructed. Ryan Nassib, I get it the same way. I keep wondering if he had gotten a chance, five-year backup in the league, never played, and I thought he was going to be a superstar. See, there you go. Well, one player who who certainly earned media superstardom last year um, and has been kind of up and down this year as the team has offensively been up and down this year as a Baltimore Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson. Um, you know, you know, a lot of people are acting like the six and three team is three and six. 
and that <laughs> Lamar is just like, what's wrong with Lamar Jackson? What's wrong with this offense? What's wrong with this team? And, um, you know, one of the things that I found interesting that I, I posed to you off the air, but I want to hear your answer again on it is, you know, I listened to I listened to a little excerpt or heard a little excerpt about him on Rich Eisen, and he kind of hint. They asked him what's wrong, and he said, "Well, you know, the the team knows the play, the the defense knows the plays." They, and he kind of said that and went there a couple of times, and you know, somebody posed that question to me, and um, and he's like, "Doesn't most teams know defenses know the plays to a certain extent?" I'm like, "Yeah," so I don't think that's an issue. So it made me wonder. Is he was he about to go somewhere that he shouldn't and realized he shouldn't and kept his mouth shut, um, you know, and maybe there's something a little bit more detailed there. And he realized he just has to lean on an answer because he doesn't want to throw his coaches under the bus um, and he doesn't want to throw or throw teammates under the bus. Um, So he's kind of going about it that way. But, you know, one of the things that I asked you was, you know, we look at Lamar's career trajectory and there were a lot of players, a lot of people in the media at the very least thought this guy was a future wide receiver, um, you know, kind of gadget player at best, and maybe didn't have the ability to be a quarterback either from a, a technical skills standpoint or maybe even an intellectual conceptual standpoint, though I think that was less so, but there was certainly some of that suggested by maybe people who weren't as savvy, um, you know, in that realm. But he's a guy that... You know, he played in the Bobby Petrino offense, which was a pro-style offense. Bobby Petrino is certainly considered one of the better offensive coordinators in football on any level, even whatever level he's been on, and that included in the NFL. And we have to remember that he came from a high school offense that was mostly running the football. He really didn't throw the ball a lot. It wasn't a very sophisticated passing offense, so he had a really steep learning curve to, to traverse from his Florida high school to what he did in Louisville, and he did it. Now, maybe they simplified certain elements of the offense to onboard him quickly, but this is a guy that got up every morning and did some, like, virtual reality work to, like, literally learn the ins and outs of how to see the field and how to go through things, and he was very dedicated to his craft, and you could see that, you know, in college as well as the NFL in terms of that this is a smart guy. Maybe he's not, you know, there's a difference between being book smart based on the environment that maybe you come from where the exposure to certain tools or tools that you have or don't have. Like I would imagine that if Case Cook is that, or um, what was the name of the the quarterback from Michigan State who's been, who used to play with the Raiders. Cook was his last name. Oh, I know who you mean. Yeah. 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 Say, Say we have a quarterback like Cook who's been like coached up in suburbia for like, you know, pretty much all his life by quarterback coaches and has you know and played in pro style units all that time and went to schools that are well funded and all of that kind of thing you probably if lamar jackson went through all of that he'd probably be much more on point about you know what he had to learn but he was probably starting a little bit behind on getting onboarded into some of the complexities of the offense doesn't mean that he wasn't going to learn it but i think that they made the offense in some regards simpler to that degree and so i asked russ with all of that as background like, was that a possibility in terms of maybe now that the team has kind of underestimated where he can grow, but how much of that is an underestimation of maybe Lamar Jackson and he's kind of wanted to say something back but realized it wasn't good form to do that, and then how much of it is just really that Lamar Jackson has certain limitations as a thrower and the, the offense is doing the best that it can to, you know, make the, you know, maximize his skills. Well, firstly, I think 
it dovetails very much with what we were just talking about, how quarterbacks excel early on, and then teams around the league sort of say, okay, what can you do, what can't you do, take things away, and then you have to adjust. The other thing I'll say is Lamar, get, give him credit. In today's world, with the media the way it is, I think if you took some of the quarterbacks from 20 years ago, whether it was Boomer Esiason or Brett Favre or any of those guys, and they were thrown into this media storm, they would have said a lot worse mm-hmm. about their coaches and about the schemes and things right off the bat. The fact that Lamar realized, I'll bet you instantly, as soon as he said they know our plays, I'm sure he had red lights going off in his head going, all right, that's as far as we're going on this one. We're going to walk this one back. I'm frustrated, but we're done. We're done. We're not going there. Because everything I've heard about the kid is he's very smart, has a natural understanding for football. I think there are two things going on here. I think, firstly, I think the Ravens identified when he came out that when you watch film of this kid, he's very relaxed and poised in the pocket, which is hard to find. There are not many quarterbacks that come out of college that have a natural feel. We were just talking about Daniel Jones. He does not have a natural clock and a feel in the pocket. When you look at Lamar, he has that. He understands it. He doesn't panic. He doesn't make bad decisions and just throw the ball up for grabs. Then you add in the fact he's got an ultra-quick release. He's got a ridiculously strong arm. So you say, okay, there's a lot to work with. And when he does things right with his footwork and gets things pointed in the right direction and is decisive and aggressive, he can be an accurate thrower. The issue is he doesn't do that consistently. And I think the Ravens looked at it and said, we have a smart kid who's hardworking, who's going to do everything we ask of him, who has the physical talent to become special if we can improve some of the fundamentals and the consistency of that. And we believe that if we take him and we tailor an offense to his skill set, he will be successful now. And then, and, and it may be a limited offense in terms of, his passing to outside the numbers, his passing to beyond 20 yards, maybe we may have to constrict that because he's not as accurate as we want due to his footwork right now. But if we limit it and he's successful, and each year we can do more and more by working with him, improving his footwork, he's going to blossom. But the thing that people don't understand is just as they're trying to do all this good stuff, the teams that are playing him aren't just saying, okay, you do what you want. We'll watch and see how <laughs> No. Every one of them is watching film saying, hey, here's the four things we think he's absolutely miserable at. Let's force him to do those four things. And because of the way their offense is structured, it is a run-based offense. It is a run-option offense where when he drops back, most of the time it's not sit there for four seconds and go through all your reads. It's make one or two quick reads, get out of the pocket, see if things change, and then if not, run. So it's a different offense. And because I think it's limited – in terms of what they're asking him to do at this point in his career, because I think they're trying to work with him to develop the ability to make all the great throws on the outside and down the field. It makes it easier for the defense to know what's coming. It's just, it's just like when the Bengals had Andy Dalton, it was a good offense, but because he had no arm strength to make all the throws, it was a limited area you had to defend. So it makes it easier to know what's coming. And I think that's what the problem that Lamar is frustrated with and I understand it, but I also think that this is going to be like we talked about between this year and next year, he's going to need to improve his ability to throw to all areas or else it's going to be hard for that offense to take the next jump. Yeah. And I think that's a great assessment and it's just, it's just a reasoned assessment as opposed to what you sometimes will hear, which is that, 
you know, he's either awful now, get rid of him now, or, you know, yeah. or there's, let's blame something else, you know? I mean, and, and it's very clear that this guy cannot throw well. And the, the dad is going to show that. I know that Dwayne McFarlane and I, Dwayne who works at PFF, who, who used to write it in my site, um, you know, does a lot of great work with data and, and he'll show us, you know, pretty much, I'm sure he'll show tonight when I do a show with him, talking about where they suffer outside the hash, where they suffer outside the numbers, what he, you know, what he's not able to do, where he ranks in the league in these areas. And it's going to be low. I mean, you can watch the film and pretty much see for the past year, you know, two years that, you know, those high velocity perimeter throws are not his game. And that's the thing that you need. That's why most teams look at quarterbacks and say, you need to at least have that, you know? Yep. And I'll tell you a great example, and I don't mean to cut you off. No, that. please. There was a quarterback, you probably remember, named Tyler Thigpen. Oh, yeah. The kid came out of, I believe it was Coastal Carolina. I think yep. it was their first quarterback ever when they started yep. football. Came into the NFL, and my buddy always tells the story because he was a scout for the Chiefs at this time. They were 1-6 and six or 1-7. and seven. They were absolutely brutal. And he was their backup, and he had never been under center in his life. And their, their coordinator at the time was Chan Gale, who is still coordinating down in Miami. He's a great coordinator. He literally threw the playbook out and said, we're rebuilding the, play, the playbook during our bye week. And they built it around Tyler's skill set, which was similar to Lamar in that short stuff, I'm good. Quick decisions, I'm good because I'm smart. The problem is just natural accuracy outside the number and beyond, say, 15 to 20 yards down the field. Well, in Thigpen's case, it worked great. I think they went 7-0 and or 8-0 and the rest of the season and finished about 500. The problem Thigpen had is he never improved in those areas. Once teams figured that out, it was over. I think with Lamar, even though there's been ups and downs, ups and downs this year, there have been incremental improvements in certain areas with him, and that's what we're going to see between now and next year is does he become – the complete quarterback to where he can excel doing everything? Or is this something they're going to have to work with? And that's the unknown because we know he's going to work at it. We know he's improved already. It's just where is this offense going to go under Greg Roman and him working together? Yeah, no, those are great points. So let's wrap this show up with a look at maybe some players that we've been watching lately. Who's someone that's intrigued you? Well, you know, I was watching Wake Forest and to watch Jamie Newman, their quarterback. And in order to do that, I had to watch 2019 film because he's not playing this year. And as I'm watching Newman, who was a very frustrating player to watch because the talent is remarkable, the production is wildly inconsistent, I kept noticing this number 14, a receiver, making play after play after play after play. And I finally said, all right, who is this guy? Is this a guy that's a senior or junior? And it turns out it's Sage Surratt, a receiver who opted out this year, who I believe is a third-year junior. So he's a true three-year guy out of high school. And this kid is a big league player. Um, and, and it's weird. You always like to draw comparisons. And, and very rarely do players really match up very well the comparison. The closest comparison I found when I watched Surratt was Keenan Allen, in that Surratt is not a 4-3 guy. He's not going to run away from guys – like the truly speed guys. But when I watch his routes and I watch his ability to get open versus virtually anybody, I see these long arms. I see a physical, aggressive football player. It reminded me a ton of Keenan Allen when he was at Cal 
And I look at this kid and think, wow, he, he's got a chance to be a special player at the next level, even though I don't think, I don't care what he times, I don't think he'll ever play faster than the mid-four-fives guy because I don't think he's got that foot in the ground and go. But, wow, he was a good football player. That's interesting. I'm going to have to go back and watch some of his short area quickness because Keenan Allen was like a like a spooked deer in the way yeah, that he could exactly. he could move. And I didn't see that my first views with Surratt, but I'm interested to see more. What I did see is completely dovetails with yours is that you put you you can put anybody on Sage Surratt and he's going to come down with the football. He is yep. a tough physical player and he's great in the middle of the field when it comes to posting up and winning the football. And yeah, if you give Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's like he's been playing backyard football with a, a like a sibling or something who yeah. might be a linebacker. I don't know. You know, it's <laughs> like maybe there's something to that. I don't know. But he um that and just on the perimeter plays, he tracks the ball very well. He's, you know, he's very calm in those tight coverage situations. So, yeah, I, I love that. I love that you've been watching him and admiring his game. Um a guy I've been watching a wide receiver last night and it's an interesting thing because i'm going to get kind of esoteric about this guy in a minute <laughs> because i watched him as brandon mack out of temple and he's 6'5 220 played a lot of special teams um big dude and i watched him against memphis where he go, runs a post route and he goes up and basically does what larry fitzgerald would have done not one of the crazy highlight plays but one where he goes up between basically a safety tailing him and heading for his chest and a cornerback at his back and goes up and wins the ball and he gets his hands like right up at his chest about right here but catches it in his chest takes the hit in the back takes the swat and then the hit into his chest comes down with the ball you know flexes looks you know completely hyped up about what he did on the play and i'm thinking that's the exception to the rule of where you keep your hands in at the chest to yep. avoid it because the defender's back is to um, the quarterback, so he doesn't know when the ball's going to arrive. So why reach out there where you can give the defender room to swat at it? He's getting sandwiched. This is great. But then I watched every other snap. And every other snap was him catching the ball like this or like this or trapping it up against his chest like it's a backstop. And he's dropping slants when he's playing t against tight coverage. He's like having to fight the ball because he's catching it against his face mask because he's letting it come into a too late of a window. And then I'm thinking, okay, that's not great, you know, but he's catching the ball, but he's got to like be outward a little bit more. But then I noticed his footwork and it's like, he's got double up moves. He's got, you know, he's got a good, he's got a hesitation move. He has, um, you know, a, a quick two-step footwork. And, I, and I'm seeing that, but the way he runs them is like an actor who like gives no emphasis to his lines, no like no emphasis, no emotion, no anything. So he's like this. Think of like somebody who's like an introverted personality to the degree that they're outwardly like just like this. Like their yep. personality is kind of like they're closed in and they're afraid to be who they are. Like him on the field, it's like that. It's like he's got these techniques that he could leverage, and he's big and he's strong and he's fast enough. And everything he does is just not exaggerated. Like if he could sell and like understand that he's not on film, he's on stage. Like he needs to actually like really exaggerate this stuff to make them work. He could be a different player. Like he could be a good 
NFL contributor, maybe more if he learns to do that. But someone's got to bring this kid, and I know that sounds esoteric because it's a theme from after watching all of this stuff. Yep. But like to me, I would think as a coach, I'd watch him and go, he's got to fix all these things. So if we were going to look at it from one after another from a symptomatic standpoint, these are all the things we got to fix. But there's a part of me that would think, I wonder if we could unlock this kid by just sitting him down and we talk with him and go, yeah, he's introverted. That's fine. But we got to get him out of his shell. And if we think we could get him out of his shell to like, you know, play with a, an, a level of emotion and a level of confidence, you know, and, and that's a hard thing to teach is confidence. But if he plays confidently in his movements, different player. Well, that's one of those things where, A, getting the information from the school, talking to the people there and finding out about his background and everything is huge. And then B, having a guy on staff, whether he's a permanent staff member or someone who's a consultant, they can go interview and spend four or five hours and try to figure out what it is that makes him fit. Because sometimes they may go in, spend the time, come back and say, don't waste your time. If this kid's mental side is never, not that he's not smart or anything, he just may never have the confidence to be the guy you want. Whereas another player, you may go in and he may say, yeah, this is a piece of cake. And there was a player this year that I got tipped off to by a scout, said, watch him, love him, but he drops a ton of balls. He's one of the most dynamic athletes I've graded spoke to someone at the school and they were basically like, Hey, we tried everything. We had to meet with four or five different therapists. This kid has so little confidence. We've never been able to get him to catch the ball, no matter what we've done. So like, okay, well, that's, that's yeah. a tough one to overcome. So that's where to me, that's where the non-football side comes in. That's yeah. where the digging, the grinding, and that's where to me, the good teams separate from the bad. Yeah. The bad teams just say, ah, oh, he needs work. He needs this. The good teams go do the extra work. Let's find out if this is a guy that we can work with and turn into a star. I would say this. If I knew enough about Keenan McCardell, other than what I see on the surface, if what I see on the surface is correct, if if the, the Jaguars sent Keenan McCardell down and we found out he spent four or five days with this kid and Keenan McCardell said, I want this kid. I can make him a good wide receiver. I would buy. That's yep, where I'd I be. Yep. Okay, cool. Well, we hope you guys totally got it with this show for sure. Uh, you know, um, and hope that you exactly. You know, we just have a good time. We kind of like we said in the beginning, we just throw things up on the wall and see what sticks. But we appreciate you guys sticking with us. And you can certainly follow Russ Landy at Russ Landy on Twitter. Me at Matt Waldman on Twitter. Um, you can certainly check out the show on all the variety of platforms that it's on. And please subscribe, rate, and review. We like to hear the feedback that we get from you guys. And, uh, you know, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you in a couple of weeks with another episode of Scout Talk.